Kansai Bojo, this is At the Edge of Canada with TJ Phillips, bringing you check-ins and interviews with all the major players in the Indigenous intellectual community throughout southern Manitoba and across the country. For the next couple of weeks, we head up north to check in with writers and artists in Inuk country. One of them is Ken Harper. He is a nonfiction writer who wrote the story of a group of Enoch vigilantes at the turn of the 20th century who took matters in their own hands to deal with a disruptive white European fur trader who came up there to cause trouble. The story is an essential story of the constitution of Canadian sovereignty and nationalism in the North, the placement of legal justice systems, and European notions of law and social order. Nukadluk was a hunter with a dark and unflattering past, an irredeemable character, but when his hunting group and a group of families in his, in his hunting group were threatened by the hunter, Robert Janes, the traitor, him and a group of Enoch hunters took the matters into their own hands and murdered Janes out of self-defense and security for their families and for the order of their group. What Ken does is he tells a story of all of these cultural differences running together into confusions and misinterpretations and ultimately the breakdown of relationship that resulted in the murder of Robert Janes. It's a fantastic look, super well-researched, very in-depth by a man who's lived in the North and is heavily connected to a number of Enoch people up North, including the person we'll be having on next week, Aviak Johnson, the graphic novelist. He told me a very beautiful story about how Aviak is named after his daughter, um, who is from Greenland. So it's just amazing, the kinship ties, when you go up North and you start to talk to people who've lived up there their entire lives or Enochs who are from the area. Anyways, this is Ken Harper on At the Edge of Canada. did you live up north for 50 years oh that's not that's a short time isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah and what brought you up there originally i went north as originally as a teacher okay and what were you teaching i was teaching uh, all, all subjects to little kids i was you know elementary school uh kindergarten basically to grade six mm-hmm okay and so when did you first come across the Robert Jane's murder story? Uh, pretty much as soon as I moved to Arctic Bay. Uh, I had spent uh, some years in southern Baffin, and then I uh, moved to Arctic Bay in 1971, and I learned to speak Inuktitut in southern Baffin, so I could already speak the language when I uh, got to Arctic Bay. And, you know, I heard, uh, I heard elders telling the story, and I just got very interested in the story at that time. So this was a story that's circulating around the community already quite a bit? Uh, 
yeah, it was a story that Inuit knew and uh, told and reminisced about to each other, but it was a story that was not widely known outside the Inuit community. Mm. And and what did you feel like was the tone of that story when you hear it from elders? Was it anecdotal? Was it serious? Like, what what kind of feeling did you get from those, those storytellers? Well, it was uh, it was both anecdotal and uh, and serious. You mm. know, they they certainly treated it as a as a grave incident that uh, that happened in their past, and uh, you know, they they looked on it. Uh, as as something that changed uh, the course of their history, something that changed their future. Um, in the book, I mention uh, um, Alulu um, saying that you know you have killed a white man. Now you're going to see another, hmm. implying that a white men will come to either investigate or perhaps avenge the death of one of their own. Hmm. Hmm. So for me, the for me the book is really a sort of a moving together of cultures and subcultures and mm-hmm. and the natural frictions that arise in those inherent misinterpretations and miscategorizations. So one of the major cultures that I saw right off the bat was the culture of independent entrepreneur fur trading. Yep. And and the men uh, the European men or the or the Canadian men who went up north to to hunt in whales or furs and how that culture collided with uh, Enoch subsistence, subsistence hunting or, or, or life network hunting. Mm-hmm. And, and you really, I think you really drill down on that first interaction really well in the first section. And it is, it's in this idea that there are, all, there are inherently cultural misunderstandings between both sectors about what hunting and trading really mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And specifically, I was thinking around credit and how credit is, because credit becomes a major plot point in this in this murder uh, around animosities between Janes and other hunters. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the how credit was involved in this and how Janes granting credit and not getting paid back fueled a lot of animosity between the hunters and, and him? So uh, of course you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't have to grant credit if you were the only trader in the district, or uh, if if you did, uh, the people would have to bring their furs to you in any case. So granting credit would not have been a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it became a problem uh, for James because uh, he was not the only trader there. There, you know, he was one of. Uh, one of three uh, for for a while, uh, you know, his operation, Munn's operation, and Bernier's operation. Mm-hmm. And um, so, when he arrived, uh, you you want to you want to get the edge on the competition, and uh, so it's natural, I, I suppose, to uh, to offer credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's likely that the Inuit did not understand fully or perhaps misunderstood the the terms of that credit mm-hmm. so um and, and and of course uh you know inuit are uh are astute uh traders and uh often went to the the, the competing trader if if you know if they had some furs and they owed jane's uh money um, you could you could go to Bernier or you could go to Munn and get full value if you didn't owe them money as well. Mm-hmm. So the Inuit were very adept at playing uh, one trader off against the other. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and and Jane's uh, had had difficulty in in collecting on on the debt. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I've 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 observed it in the north in my own time, uh, even. You know, in the 1970s, people had a poor understanding of what was involved in credit. And, uh, you know, some people even saying, well, why do I have to pay off this debt? Because the thing I bought, I've used it up. I don't have it anymore. Yeah. You know? So so credit was, was problematic. And, of course, then James had to uh, had to collect the credit, and, and that's where he came to grief. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons he is in this financial bind is because he's making promises of a ship coming with, with new stores and new inventory that he's going to be able to, to, to trade more and, and, and relieve him of some of the lack of provisions that he was having. But that ship doesn't come, and it forces him to, to take off. To well, that, that's right. And, and, of course, he wasn't lying to the people. He did expect that ship to come. Right. And uh, it didn't come for, for you know, uh, circumstances, because of circumstances that happened uh, in St. John's. Uh, where uh, his his backer apparently uh, went insane, uh, yeah. and and for for one reason or another sold the ship, and uh, James was effectively abandoned in the Arctic, mm-hmm. and so the 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 promised uh, trade goods uh, that were going to get him out of his jam never arrived. Yeah, and I and I love that sort of actual but also metaphorical situation where Inuit traders are basically waiting for the white man's ship to come in and it never does. I love that I love that tense that tension and energy in the first section of the book. Mm-hmm. Because if we're thinking about Inuit sensibilities of credit in that as long if I run out of the resource or I'm not using the the resource you've traded with me, it doesn't count for anything. Well, what about <laughs> European or or Anglo-Canadian versions of what a promise could mean, and and if it doesn't have any retained value, does it does it cease to continue to be a promise? I, I was wonder I was grappling with that sensibility while I was reading reading that first section. Yeah, that's a that's that's a difficult question. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Kusugak, a modern day Inuit author, he he wrote he writes children's books. He wrote a book called A Promise Is a Promise. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but that's that's a modern day sensibility. So mm-hmm. I. I, I don't know. You've posed a you've posed a tough one there. Environment that atmosphere happens in a lot of narratives with sort of explosive drama and violence, where you have this situation where there's just like this breakdown in the moral majority. Like the somebody there has has overstepped the the rules or the ethics of a place that is ostensibly lawless outside of cultural norms and values. And I think you paint this really fascinating picture of this being a time of not only um, market and economical change and not only instability in migration and people, but also there seems to be religious, spiritual, and cultural transition happening at the same time. The religious uh, fervor started, uh, you know, just before James was killed. Uh, uh, I, I believe the date was 1919 when Akumalik came uh, up from Cumberland Sound or back from Cumberland Sound, uh, bringing his version of uh, of religion. But the Inuit had had Bibles and prayer books that they got sort of traded up the coast long before they'd ever seen a missionary. Mm. In fact, in Pond Inlet, uh, the first missionary was not until 1929. Mm-hmm. So the Inuit had had... Uh, 
Bibles and prayer books since the late 1890s and had an imperfect understanding of them, but literacy in Inuktitut was uh, was quickly achieved because mm. the syllabic writing system uh, was uh, was very simple to learn, and it it spread on the basis of kind of. Uh, each one teach one, you know. So if I if if I'm the missionary at my mission station and I teach you, and then you go back to your hunting camp, and you teach the people there who have never seen a missionary, mm-hmm. and uh, travelers come to that camp or travelers go from that camp to other places and teach other people, there's a sort of a link effect uh, working its way out from the mission station, whereby. Many, many Inuit uh, in Baffin Island who would not see a missionary for for decades, nonetheless learned how to uh, read and write in syllabics, and and so they could read the Bible. Now, understanding it might have, you know, understanding it was a was a very different story. Mm-hmm. And so this uh, uh, perversion of Christianity uh, developed, uh, which uh, you know, which Umik. Uh, and Nukadlat took down to the Iglulik area, so it it it, it spread from Pond Inlet after Akumalik came back from Cumberland Sound. And the scene you paint, uh, the murder scene specifically, it's really more of a of a crucible uh, atmosphere, where James is becoming is growing increasingly unstable and almost claustrophobic with the community of hunters that are surrounding him to the point that he's lashing out, he's making threats, and then the plot, the plot is hatched to, to, to do away with him before he does harm to anybody else. Yes. That, and that story, that is a story pieced together years after, but that's a lot of work done on your part through uh, hearing stories and getting oral testimony and doing that kind of research? And using the RCMP reports, okay. using Captain Joy's investigation, which was well documented as mm-hmm. well. So mm-hmm. it's, it's it's putting it together from uh, a variety of sources. Mm-hmm. And so there, to me, is another cultural collision. And this one, instead of it being around credit, this one to me is around safety and defense, mm-hmm. and also like motive and what constitutes. What constitutes the the right for an individual to to prepare to defend themselves? And I, I always I found one of the things I found really compelling in the retelling of the story is how the hunters are when when they corner Jane's or not corner him but sort of ensnare him to to murder him, uh, and they draw him out of his snow house. They tell him we're going to make a trade. We got your furs. You can come out. And he comes out smoking his pipe in a sweater. And then he's fired upon. It's initially it's a shaky firing. Like they're nervous. These are trained hunters, like who have years of training and hunting in their in their in their life, who are missing on their first shot. And how there's so much anxiety in this moment um, as this murder is happening. I was very struck by this by this being part of the process of defending oneself and how nervous they were. Uh, I was wondering what you thought about about that interaction. Well, you know, no cod luck. Uh came to the uh, acceptance of the fact that it would have to be him that did away with James uh, quite reluctantly. I mean, he didn't, he didn't relish this, uh, this task. Mm-hmm. But um, in the traditional culture uh, that he was part of, um, if the safety of, uh, of your community is, is threatened, uh, 
your people's lives are endangered, uh, you you know somebody has to take action, mm-hmm. and uh, the community generally decides who that person will be, and uh, it's someone who is uh, um, not necessarily, as I called Nokadlak early, not Mr. Nice Guy, uh, but the the person who's capable. Right. And and uh, competent, the person who has uh, who has the trust of the rest of the community, I guess, to mm-hmm. to do the job. But that doesn't mean he relished the job, and, right. and obviously did not. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was a there was a lot of hesitation, and the, and the fact that it took a couple of bullets to do the entire job uh, uh, indicates that anxiety and trepidation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's real. I really liked how you put that. I I thought it was a really sort of pivotal moment, in the, and obviously it being the murder being pivotal, but just the anxieties that are around it and how this was a, a communally hatched plan, that there was a role assigned. I, I thought that was a really neatly done. I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. When I think about performativity of British legal systems or performativity of of ownership of space, it's all throughout the narrative and history of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And so this trial, as you as you know in the book, this becomes an, an essential component of sovereignty in the Canadian North. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so why, like, could you encapsulate that for the listeners? Like, why is that such an essential component of Canadian sovereignty in the North? That that the trial and in, in the and the staging and the performance of of like justice. You don't find a document in the archives that says uh, overtly. Uh, we need this to uh, establish Canadian sovereignty because Ottawa's position was that they had sovereignty. Mm. Uh, but they were doubtful that their claims to sovereignty over the high Arctic would be recognized by other nations mm-hmm. because they weren't uh, effectively occupying the place, mm. um, using the place. And um, and then this... Um, threat, uh, a totally misunderstood threat uh, that was uh, not a threat at all, uh, of Greenlandic hunters uh, coming into Ellesmere Island to hunt Canadian musk oxen, and uh, the misinterpretation of the correspondence between Canada and uh, the Danish uh, um, trader and ethnographer Knud Rasmussen um, that correspondence was was very badly misunderstood. So Canada convinced itself that Denmark uh, was not uh, recognizing its sovereignty over the high Arctic. Mm. Now that that threat was on Ellesmere Island, but Ellesmere Island's close enough, mm-hmm. um, and there were no Inuit living north of the Pond Inlet area at this time. So if the threat or the perceived threat uh, to sovereignty was in the high Arctic, then what the government uh, decided was that, uh, well, um, we can enhance our claim to sovereignty, uh, enhance the possibility that other people are going to recognize our sovereignty over the high Arctic by showing um that the people who actually do live there are subject to Canadian law. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, the Janes case simply played right into their hands. They uh, they they had a, a, uh, an 
incident that they could uh, create a trial around and show that the Inuit of the high Arctic uh, were subject to Canadian law, and therefore this is Canadian territory. Mm. Canadian sovereignty in the north and Ottawa's responsibility to the north in providing it equitable... um, equitable governance and attention and uh, social programming is an ongoing conversation today. This yep. this trial being located in the 1920s, but now 90 years down the road, here we are, you know, talking about Arctic sovereignty and resource extraction. I just recently watched Angry Enoch, Althea Arnicook Burrell's uh, recent documentary that is really, 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 really good. And it's about uh, seal hunting in the north. She talks about how it seems as though Inuit activists and educated young um, Inuit researchers in the south of Canada are doing a better job at advocating for northern sovereignty than ambassadors and diplomats and foreign trade ministers in Canadian Parliament. I'm wondering... How much has changed in the 90 years since the beginning of Canada asserting itself judicially in the North to today as somebody who's lived there for 50 years? How do you see the relationship today? You know, the, so, so the show trial that happened at Pond Inlet in 1923 um, brought, uh, brought police to the area and brought uh, an introductory knowledge of, uh, of, of Canadian law uh, to the people there. But then the 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 government uh, generally uh, continued to ignore the Inuit for a number of decades. After that, um, Pond Inlet uh, became a mission post in 1929 when both Catholic and Anglican missionaries uh, established there, and the police remained, uh, of course, and the Hudson's Bay Company remained, but the Inuit. Um, uh, aside from a few families that uh, worked for these various white institutions, the Inuit continued living in their traditional camps, uh, living living on the land, and having very little um, very little to do um, with um, you know with uh, with southern Canada. Um, Pandora's box really opened uh, when the Arctic, at least the southern parts of the Arctic, opened up during World War II. And uh, as you know, once Pandora's box is opened, it's uh, very difficult to close it again. So the Canadian government, after the war, um, began to eventually, and uh, perhaps reluctantly at first, provide uh, some services uh, to the Inuit, health services, education services, and eventually in the mid-60s, uh, a big housing program uh, that uh, provided housing for Inuit in the communities, which meant, uh, of course, that you had to move in off the land. But throughout, uh, throughout all this time, the Inuit generally followed their own systems of, of governance mm. and social control um, because they weren't living right under the noses of, of the uh, of the RCMP. And uh, unless you committed some dastardly crime, you weren't going to attract the attention of the RCMP. Mm. Um, and you'd come into the post and uh, do your trading with the trader and visit the missionary and say hello to the policeman and, and uh, be on your way, uh, generally. Uh, 
back to your camp. And uh, so, so Inuit governance was still more or less intact until after the war, and especially until the 1960s, uh, when the housing programs brought people in, in off the land and into the communities mm-hmm. uh, where they would have health care and their children could get an education. And um, at that point, uh, you know, that, that point is kind of synonymous, and I don't think it's a coincidence, uh, with the beginning of Inuit political uh, activism. Mm. Uh, it, it wasn't long after people gathered into the communities that, uh, for example, the uh, Inuit uh, Tapariksat of Canada, as it was called then, uh, was launched uh, in, in the early 1970s um, as, a, uh, as a mouthpiece for Inuit uh, to express their aspirations. And uh, of course, that whole that whole process eventually resulted in uh, in the Nunavut land claim that we have now, and in the creation of the Nunavut uh, territory, uh, you know, which which resulted in the Northwest Territories uh, splitting in two in 1999. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it, all of this evolved, but but slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the real change started after World War II and especially in the 1960s mm. when Inuit moved in off the land. Mm. Um, I think Nokadlak and Ululiangnak, because he was convicted too, yeah. I, th- I actually think they should posthumously be granted a pardon. Mm. Um, I've, I've never suggested that. And I don't suggest it in the book, uh, and it's perhaps not up to me to suggest it, mm. uh, except I'm suggesting it to you now. This is the first <laughs> time I've actually ever talked about it to oh, anyone. Oh, interesting. Uh, but I think uh, it was a, uh, <clears throat> a trial that was uh, based on a lot of uh, false premises. Uh, not, they were not tried by a jury of their peers. Um, there were... A number of um, uh, oddities, let's say, about about the trial itself, mm-hmm. um, and I think uh, the trial was based on a misunderstanding of uh, Inuit uh, Inuit justice systems. I mean, what are you supposed to do uh, if there are no if if there's no external control or, or internal formalized control system in your community to turn over uh, a person who is exhibiting dangerous behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no one to turn James over to, to. There was no way of restricting his movements. There was no way of locking him up. Right. Um, so they used a traditional Inuit uh, justice methods. Uh, yeah. And uh, and there was no alternative, really, to this. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, um, but I would say what happened there was justifiable homicide. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I've often toyed with the idea of, of, of suggesting, but I didn't do it in the book. It's for someone else to draw that conclusion, I think, that... Uh, that uh, Maybe these guys should be posthumously pardoned. 
Well, I'm definitely on board with a posthumous pardon for sure. Uh, I I was generally as irredeemable as even some of the Enoch people are in the story. Uh, reading it as an Indigenous person, I was grossly offended by the misappropriation and the misapplication of justice in the North for dealing with ways in which the Inuit people were handling essentially their own business and their own communities and their own safeties of their families. So I, uh, I, I'm definitely on board for the, for the posthumous pardon. And, uh, you know, I think it's significant that uh, when I interviewed Robert James's uh, sister-in-law, a very ancient woman in 1972 uh, she said oh yes uh, you're 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 wanting to talk about uh, when when the uh, when the eskimos killed uncle bob as she called him because uh, her her grandson was in the room well, when the eskimos killed uncle bob and uh, you know captain munn put them up to it it was all his fault mm. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the recollection that Jane's family has. And, it, it, you know, it's easy to see when you read about Munn's meddlesomeness in this whole story, mm-hmm. uh, how, how they hold that opinion. Mm. That's fascinating. I love that. Well, thank you. I, I can't, I'm not going to steal any more of your time, but I, I do appreciate you chatting and, star- and sharing your stories. Uh, Thou shalt do no murder, Inuit injustice in the Canadian Arctic. It's out there now. Uh, Ken Harper, really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, The attention to detail, the nuanced research, the oral methodology, and the insider's perspective of life in the North. Uh, Just thank you so much, and I appreciate everything you do. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. At the Edge of Canada is produced at the UMFM studios on the University of Manitoba campus in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The University of Manitoba is situated on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Cree, the OJ Cree, the Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. You can get all updated podcasts and live streams through At the Edge of Canada at umfm.com, or you can listen to us live on the UMFM app. The lead track is Nahewak Starlight. And if you like what you hear from me, you can follow me on Twitter at tfillers. Up next, your campus today.